Morning, guys. Good to see some of you at least on screen. I hope, hope you can all hear me. I hope you can. I'm sure you can. Um, my name's Andrew. If, you, if you're visiting with us, I don't know if you, maybe you just logged on just to, to check us out or whatever. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Andrew. I'm one of the pastors here at Village Church, um, and it's good to see you. If you have a Bible in front of you, please try and do have a Bible in front of you whenever we're gathering. Uh, open your Bible to Hebrews chapter 7. That's where we're going to be. Oh, that's so much better, John, to just see everyone. Yeah. Um, now I can see loads of people on screen, which is amazing. Um, open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 7. That's where we're going to be. I am going to make that joke um, about 2021, because remember like two weeks ago when everyone was saying, oh, uh, won't it be great when 2021 comes and everything will be amazing again? And now here it is, and it feels like we're back to square one or maybe even having uh, back to square zero. Um, and it did kind of make me think this week, and, and I was sharing with uh, the staff here in our meeting on Monday, that we need, we need something firm, something dependable, something that is uh, more reliable than just the calendar flipping from one year to another, right? Um, we need something more firm than that. And so I'm really, really glad that we're getting back into the book of Hebrews this morning. Um, that's a, we've been in Hebrews for a while, and then we, we parked that for a wee while so we could do our Advent series, uh, and then we had our Christmas break, and now we're getting back into Hebrews. And the reason I'm glad we're doing this is because I don't remember a time in my life, maybe some of you uh, people who are older than me do, but I don't remember a time in my life when the world seemed more uncertain uh, than it does right now. Even just seeing things that were happening in America this week, just shocking images that you, know, you, you don't expect to see. Um, but the good news from the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better, right? Jesus is better. That's what we've called this series that uh, for a reason, because that's kind of the main thrust, the main uh, message of, of this book. And, and uh, he, here's a, 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 just a quick kind of summary of, of what I think uh, the purpose of Hebrews is. Hebrews is designed to leave us with no doubt that Jesus Christ is ultimately and completely superior to everything that came before him, and so we should push deeper into our relationship with him and not fall away from him. And that's, a, I mean, that's, what, we, that's what we need now, isn't it? Uh, when everything is so uncertain, uh, when, we, when we thought, well, hopefully we can be together again and get some normality back again, or when politically things are in turmoil, and uh, when even this week, you know, seeing... Uh, like fruit shelves being empty in the supermarkets and all that kind of stuff. Let's push deeper into our relationship with Jesus. Um, this book was, was given to, I, I believe it was a sermon to a group of Jewish Christians. You might remember us talking about this before. Um, and and they, they believed in Jesus. They've come to believe in Jesus, but now they're facing opposition. Um, they're, they're, they're on the verge of being persecuted for their love of Jesus. Um, and they're tempted to turn away from him and go back to the old, their old ways of trust in the Old Testament system of, of law and of sacrifices and of priests. And, and, and just to give us an idea of where we are in the book, um, we, we've kind of been on this journey that the pastor of this sermon takes us on this journey, and he starts out by saying that Jesus is better than the angels. Uh, he's better than the angels, and he's better than the Torah, the Old Testament law. He's, a, he's a, both a better messenger and he is a better message than anything that came before him uh, through the angels or through the Torah. And then uh, he goes on to say that, that Jesus is better than Moses. And in fact, he's even better than the promised land. You remember that, that Moses led God's people out of slavery towards the land of promise. 
And, and the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is better than Moses. He's a better Savior. He's a better Deliverer. And He leads us into something that is far better than just a land of promise for one nation and one people. The, 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 the rest and the peace and the promise we have in Jesus is, is for all nations and for all peoples. And then as we went into Advent at the end of November, we left off in the middle of this section that we're picking up back up this morning, in which, which explains that Jesus is better than the, the Old Testament priests. So that's where we are, and that's what we're going to read this morning. So I'm just going to read for us, um, uh, starting in Hebrews chapter 6, actually, I'm going to read from verse 19. So if you have Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, and I'm going to read through to verse 10 of chapter 7. Um, so let's read this and, and remember that we believe that this is God's Word. This is God actively, livingly speaking to His people this morning. You at home, wherever you are right now, He's speaking to us. And so when I finish reading, even if you're on your own or you're with other people, I'm going to say, this is the Word of the Lord, and you're all going to say, uh, thanks be to God. Um, so let's read Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. We dip into this idea of Jesus as our priest. We have this as a sure, a sure and steadfast anchor for the soul. So that's that Jesus is our priest. This is our, our sure and steadfast anchor. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain. So, so actually in the presence of God himself. Where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And then at chapter 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to Abraham, and, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. But resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever." See how great this man was to whom Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the spoils? And those descendants of Levi who received the priestly office have a commandment in the law to take tithes from the people, that is, from their brothers and sisters, though these also are descended from Abraham. But this man, who does not have a descent from them, received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. It is beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In one case, tithes are received by mortal men, but in the other case, by one of whom it is testified that he lives. One might even say that Levi himself, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, for he was still in the loins of his ancestor when Melchizedek met him. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, nice, easy, nice, easy passage to kick off, get us back into the series again. Um, I, I, it's a funny, a funny thing, this concept of priesthood, isn't it? Um, because uh, we, we don't really live in a world where priests uh, garnered that much authority or importance at all. Even if, even if you grew up in a Roman Catholic tradition, uh, a priest in that setting is nothing like the priest of the Old Testament. Um, the priests in the Old Testament, they had to live holy lives. They had to offer sacrifices. They had to behave in a certain way so that they could uh, actually secure forgiveness of sins for the people. And so you might be thinking, or you might think when you read stuff like this, or maybe you were thinking this when we left off this priesthood bit in November, why do we even need a priesthood? Why is this guy, we have Jesus, like why are we still talking about priesthood? 
Well, let me just remind us that a priest is just somebody who stands in the gap, someone who mediates between people and God, someone who can bring us close to God and someone who can bring God close to us. And priesthood is necessary because of our separation from God. That every single human being is born in separation from God. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. It even goes on to say that your sins have hidden his face from you. This is the most fundamental problem that all human beings face. That we're born in separation from God. And, And so we need a priest to be brought close to God again. We're separated from God. The one who created life and we're separated from him. So we are destined to death. Physical death, yes. And then eternal death. And so the most important question that everyone should be asking, that every human being should ask themselves, isn't when is this pandemic going to be over? When am I going to be eligible to get a vaccine? Or what job should I do? Or who should I marry? The most important question that every single human being should ask themselves is, how can I draw near to God? How can I draw near to God? And now, if we did a survey, on, even among our church, you guys there, if we had time to do that, we might get a few different answers. And here's some that I thought of. Most of us might go to religious practice, right? But being religious, that's how we're going to get close to God. So I'm going to pray more. I'm going to come to church more. I'm going to tithe more. Even mentions tithing in this passage. So surely being religious, that's a good way to get to God. Um, other people in the world, even I find myself drawn to this one, is, is through experience. We all want the experience. For some people, that's being out in nature. Like my wife, uh, Haley, she just loves going to the, going to the sea and, and dipping her feet in the water, um, no matter how cold it is, you know, like just something about being out in nature. Other people enjoy meditation and spirituality, and these things will, will, will allow me to get close to God. Other people might say, morality, right? I'm going to be a better person. Just be nicer, right? Just be, I'm just going to be a, a nice and kind as possible. And maybe this higher authority, this God, whatever it is, might look with kindness on me. And some people would say intellect. And this is really common among uh, our Christian circles. I've just got to read the Bible more. I've got to study more. I've got to listen to more talks. I've got to get smarter. I've got to know all the theological answers. But when it comes to the question, this most fundamental need that we have, how do we draw close to God? Chapter 7 of Hebrews gives us the answer. And it's so important that we're going to spend the next three weeks answering this question. How do we draw near to God? That's what chapter 7 of Hebrews is about. And, and, and the pastor, this expert preacher, he sums up the answer to this question in verse 25. Let me read it for us. If you have it in front of you, read chapter 7, verse 25. He says this, consequently, so everything he's about to say, he, that's Jesus, Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Now this verse tells us two things right at the start that we need to bear in mind through through the next three weeks. Jesus is able to save completely to the uttermost, absolutely, And he lives to pray for us. He continuously lives to pray for us. In other words, it's through Jesus that we draw near to God. And Jesus lives to represent us. 
and to plead for us and to pray for us. Very simply, what this, what this pastor is trying to do is, is to show that Jesus is the only path to God. Jesus is the only way to draw close to God. And, and there's nothing more fundamental, more important for you to hear and understand and grasp. It's, it's, it's a matter of life, and it's more important than a matter of life and death. You're separated from God and you're destined for death. And the only way to be brought close to God and therefore brought into life is to, is to draw close to God. And the only way to do that is through Jesus. And we need to remember the context. That just means who this sermon or this letter or this book was given to in the first place. Remember, the people who were hearing this sermon preached or hearing it read afterwards or whatever, they were Jewish believers and they were facing opposition. They realized that actually following Jesus came at a cost because they didn't naturally fit into society anymore. They weren't going to lie about their taxes. Uh, they weren't happy to maybe bow down to the Roman gods. Uh, a lot of people believe that this was a church in Rome. They weren't going to bow down to the Roman gods or, or bow down to, to, to the emperor. They believed that Jesus was Lord. And so they started facing opposition. And in that opposition, in their hour of, of desperation and hardship, they're so tempted to go back to the old ways. You see, the Jews had no problem in knowing their need of a priest. Like, we're kind of like, I don't need a priest. But they, were, they knew that. They were happy to believe that, that they needed a priest. But they were beginning to think that maybe Jesus isn't the man for the job. Like, what's wrong, with the, what's wrong with the priests that we had? What's wrong with the, the priests of Levi, of Levi and Leviticus in the Old Testament? And if you'd asked them, how do we draw, draw, draw near to God? They probably would have said, well, look, we know, we know you're a Christian. We know we're supposed to say it's through Jesus. But listen, it's pretty hard following Jesus right now. So we're going to try and get close to God through the Old Testament priestly system. And uh, maybe these priests, maybe they can offer enough sacrifices in just the right way that will make us right with God. And the author, he has to show them, listen, Jesus is the only way to God. That system is obsolete. That was temporary. All that was doing was pointing towards Jesus, who is the better priest. And he shows them that not only is Jesus their priest, but he's also a far better priest than all of the Old Testament system of priests that have come before him. And he does this through this mysterious character, Melchizedek. Uh, in my notes, I've written a lot of times just Mel, shortened to Mel. So if I say Mel, I'm, I'm not talking about the Spice Girls. I'm actually talking about Melchizedek. Um, but do you know how hard it is to type Melchizedek like 50 times? Um, Melchizedek, he's, he's this mysterious figure who, who only appears once in the Bible, and then he's only mentioned twice after that. Um, and we first meet him way back in the time of Abraham, right? Now, at this time, uh, you can read about this in Genesis chapter 14. And this time, uh, in the region of what would become Israel, although it's not anything like that at the time, uh, each kind of town or, or small region is ruled by a king. Now, please don't think of like Louis XV or, you know, palaces or armies or anything like that. These are, these are kind of like mayors of small towns, but they would have some authority. They would make decisions. They would lead the people. They would rule over maybe two or 3,000 people at most each. 
Um, and, and what had happened uh, at this time was that there was an alliance of four of these kings. So four of these small town kings had got together and they said, hey, we can actually do each other a lot of good here. So they had put their forces together and they had attacked towns and regions. They went in these raids and they had taken treasure and goods and money. And, and most importantly, they had stolen, they had kidnapped hostages, right? They had taken captives that they would probably turn into slaves. And one of these hostages was Abraham's nephew, Lot, who lived in a town called Sodom, which is infamous uh, later on in Genesis for other reasons. And when Abraham heard that his nephew had been kidnapped, he got his army, 318 men, right, his trained fighters, and he took off in pursuit of these raiders and went all the way from the south, uh, south of Jerusalem all the way as far north as Damascus, about 130 miles on foot. Like, these are fit men, like fit guys. And, and when they caught up with them, he kind of, like, waits till nightfall and launches this, like, SAS-style sneak attack, under cover of darkness, goes in, uh, attacks them in surprise, defeats all four uh, kings and armies, rescues the hostages, gets all the money and treasure back, and then heads back south. It's funny because you always think of Abraham as like, you know, frail old guy, like leaning on a stick. But, you know, he must have had that old man strength because you don't mess with Abraham, right? He's a, he's a king in his own right. And so when he returns south, you can imagine him coming back covered in, in, in dust, probably even smeared with blood after having rescued his nephew and all these captives. And, and, and people see him and his 318 men, and they're coming back as heroes. They've rescued all the captives. He's got Lot, his nephew, back, and he's got all the plunder of war that they've taken. And like, you know, when Captain America comes back, he goes behind enemy lines, and then comes back with all the soldiers he's rescued, kind of like that, except without alien guns. But, and, then, uh, and then, on his way back, he goes to meet so the king of Sodom. Now, Sodom is Lot's king, and so he goes to return Lot to his king and to give back all the other captives and all the other money, and this is where we meet Melchizedek. And here's what Genesis tells us about him. Now, bear in mind, what I'm about to read, these three verses are, are, are the basis for everything we know about Melchizedek in the entire Bible. It says this, Genesis 14, 17 to 20. After his return from the defeat of Chedorlaomer, Chedorlaomer is one of the kings, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet Abraham at the valley of Shiva, that is, the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was priest of God Most High. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. Now what I just read is everything we know about Melchizedek in, in the entire Bible. As quickly as he appears, he disappears again. And then, for a thousand years after this, there's no mention of Melchizedek until he comes up again in one of David's psalms. By this stage, Israel is a nation, and David is one of their greatest kings. He's also a guy who, who writes all these prayers and, and hymns called psalms. And you can imagine King David uh, reading his Bible, and he's uh, do, doing his devotions, or whatever he called it, and he's reading Genesis 14. Uh, and, and he reads the story of Melchizedek, and he's thinking about God's promise to redeem his people. And he puts the pieces together. And this is what he writes in Psalm 110, verse 4. He says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. 
God has declared through David's psalm that he is doing something new. He's going to bring somebody into history who would be a priest just like Melchizedek, this mysterious guy who was a priest of God Most High was a priest. Someone who can be both priest and king. Someone who can represent his people before God and rule over his people. And this priesthood is going to last forever. And just like Melchizedek, this priest will be appointed by God. So he's not just a priest for the Jewish people. He's a priest for all people. He's going to make it possible for all people from every race, every country, every family to come close to God, to draw near to God. And he says, God has sworn this and he will not change his mind. And then, as quickly as he appears, he disappears again. And then we fast forward another thousand years. Another thousand years, and we get to Hebrews. And this pastor who, who's, who's, who's writing this Hebrews, he knows Jesus, right? He knows Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. And he knows his Bible. He knows of his need to come close to God and he knows that Jesus is the only way to do that. And he knows the story of Melchizedek from, from Genesis 14. And he knows the prophecy of, of, of this priest and king like Melchizedek in Psalm 110. And then he puts it all together. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus Christ is the priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Jesus is both priest and king because he is a priest and king like Melchizedek was both priest and king. This mysterious person from ancient history is a sign that's pointing forward to the true and forever priest and king, one who can be our priest and king forever. He's, he's what we call, and what theologians call, a type of Christ. That just means that he, he, he foreshadows Jesus. He's like Jesus. He's like an incomplete Jesus. In verse 3 of Hebrews 7, tells us that, that he resembles the Son of God. That's what he means. We're supposed to look at Melchizedek and say, what are you, do you show us about Jesus, our priest and our king? It's kind of like a photo resembles, uh, a, 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 a photo is a, a resemblance of a person. But you get way more, no matter how good the photo is, you get way more detail when you're up close and personal in the presence of the, the physical person than any photo could ever give us. So what can we learn about Jesus Christ and his kingship and his priesthood from Melchizedek? And there's three things I want to, this is going to be a three-week journey, okay? But I'm going to point out three things this morning that I think that the that Hebrews and, and what God wants to show us this morning. Firstly, Jesus is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Have, have a look at verse verses 1 and 2 with me again. It says this, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, and to, Abraham him, and to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, uh, uh, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. Now, Melchizedek has a name that means king, and we're going to come back to that in a minute. But he is actually also a king. He's not just like, you know, called king, you know, like Elvis or something. He's, he actually, he is a king. He's called king, but he also is a king. And the fact that he's a king is mentioned four times in, in these two verses. 
And remember, when, when something is repeated in the Bible, it's usually a good indication to us that the biblical authors and that God wants us to see that it's important. So what is he trying to say? Sorry, my throat's really dry this morning. Um, what is he trying to say? He's trying to say that this, this man, this person called Melchizedek, who is, remember, a foreshadow of Jesus, is both a king by name and a king by position. Not only is he called king, he is a king. And of course, this points to Jesus, who is not just called king of kings, but he is king of kings. King of kings and Lord of lords, Revelation 19 tells us. There is no one with more power or authority or with more right to rule than Jesus Christ. And he will reign forever. Um, we finally finished uh, season four of The Crown. I feel like I've been talking about it in sermons for months. I finally finished it over the holidays, right? Um, and you're watching how the Queen struggles with, uh, you know, prime ministers and the Commonwealth and even her own family, right? And you realize that even though she's called the Queen, even though she's the Queen, she doesn't have that much power, really. Uh, and, and the Queen is, the Queen of England is, is she's a constitutional monarch, She's a monarch by name and by authority, but not by power. But here's what I want to point out. Jesus is not a constitutional monarch. He has ultimate power and ultimate authority, and we must bow down to him. And you can either bow down to him now, you can either recognize him as, as, as king of kings now in your life, or wait till someday and turn to Revelation 19 and see him coming in all his power and all his authority when he will reveal his power and authority. And you can bow down to him then. But if that's the case, you won't bow down to him in, in his favor. Just the other day, watching what was happening in Washington, D.C., and, and, and our, our support and church, Redemption Hill over there, I was on the um, texting uh, Bill, who's the pastor, and, and just seeing how things were, like just horrible scenes. Pray for that city. Um, but these people are desperate to make sure that their man is in power. But the, but the ironic thing is, what they don't realize is that the White House or Downing Street or Buckingham Palace has no real power at all. It's an illusion of power. It's limited power. It's temporary authority. And these men and women in these positions, they're only there because God allows them to be there. And God will decide when their time's up. But Jesus has ultimate power and ultimate authority, and he will reign and rule forever. So I guess my first challenge for us is, is Jesus Lord of your life? Do you recognize him as King of Kings? And there's something else about Melchizedek being king that I want to point out here. His name, right? The pastor of, of Hebrews has done the, 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 the work for us. We don't have to look up dictionaries and, and all this kind of stuff because he just tells us that in Hebrew, Melchizedek means uh, King of Righteousness. Now, righteousness is a word that the Bible uses, a very important word, so you learn it and understand what it means. It means being right with God, okay? That's what righteousness means. And Melchizedek is the king of being right with God. That's what his name means. But not only is that his name, he's actually uh, king of a place called Salem. Now, Salem might sound familiar to you because it's actually part of Jerusalem. It's also the Hebrew word shalom, peace. If you, if you were around for Advent series, you'll know that shalom means peace. It means peace with God. It means wholeness. It means being reconciled with God. 
And so here we have Melchizedek, who's a picture of the Lord Jesus, the king of righteousness, ruling over a kingdom of peace. Isn't that incredible? This is what Melchizedek tells us about Jesus. We saw this during Advent in Isaiah 9, that that the Messiah, Jesus, is the Prince of Peace. And of the increase of his government of peace, there will be no end. And he establishes that government of peace in righteousness. The Bible over and over again proves that, that Jesus is righteousness and our peace. 1 Corinthians 1.30, he is our righteousness. Ephesians 2.14, he himself is our peace. You see, righteousness and peace, being right with God and being reconciled to God, come together in the person of Jesus Christ. He is our righteousness. He is our peace. He is our right standing with God and he is our reconciliation to God. Jesus is our king of being right with God, and he rules over his kingdom of peace with God. So tell me, how do we draw near to God? That's the question we're trying to answer. We do it through our king, Jesus, who is the king of being right with God, who is the king of being reconciled to God. Who else can bring us close to God? Who else can make us right with God? Who else can give us peace with God? Who else can heal our separation from God? Who else can meet our most fundamental need except Jesus Christ, the King of righteousness and the King of peace? I know we were joking about 2021, but the truth is that uncertainty never goes away, right? There's always been uncertainty in the world. So how do you want to start your year off? Do you want to start your year off just living with uncertainty? Or do you want the guaranteed certainty of being close to God, of drawing near to God? Jesus is the only way. He's our king of righteousness and our king of peace. And I've just looked at the time for the first time since I stood up here and I need to hurry up a wee bit. Um, So what else do we learn from our old mucker Melchizedek? Um, Not only is our king of righteousness and king of peace, He never stops being our priest. He is our forever priest. He is our priest forever. Um, Now, there's two parts of this that I want to look at, hopefully pretty quickly. Um, He is our priest, yes, but he's also our priest forever. So firstly, he's our priest. You see, the the Jews had a problem when it came to Jesus being a priest because the, the Old Testament law specifically states that a priest has to come from the tribe of Levi. 12 tribes of Israel, 12 sons of of Jacob. Uh, And and the tribe of Levi are the tribe that the priests come from. And you can't, by Jewish law, be a priest unless you come from that tribe. And Jesus doesn't. Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. So for the Jews, it's impossible for Jesus to be priest. King? Yeah, absolutely. Because kings come from the tribe of Judah. So you want to be a king, Jesus? Work away. When he was crucified, what was on his cross? the king of the Jews. But for a priest, that's a different matter. So how can he be both priest and king? And the answer is found in Melchizedek. Melchizedek was the king of Salem, but he was also priest of God Most High. So right here in Melchizedek is proof that it's possible to be both priest and king. Melchizedek is a foreshadow of Jesus and shows us that God's Messiah will be priest and king. Not only is a priest like Melchizedek, but he's a far better, far superior priest to Melchizedek. And 
Listen, Hebrews isn't inventing some new concept here. The Bible is always pointing forward to uh, the Messiah being a king and a priest. We need him to be priest and king. You know why? Because if, if he's just a king, then all he can do is make us his royal subjects. But unless he's a priest as well, he can never bring us close to God. He can never bring us into the presence of God. There's a prophecy in Zechariah. I'm sure you're all familiar with Zechariah. Everyone reads it. <laughs> Zechariah 6.13. This is talking about Jesus, looking forward to the Messiah. And it says this, It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor. You see that? Priest and temple together with with royal honor. And shall sit and rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on the throne. And the council of peace shall be between them both. Jesus is our priest and king. And it's one good thing having a good and righteous king but it's even better having a king who's a priest. As, as king, as our king, Jesus sits on his throne, but as our, as our priest, he brings us into the, the presence of his royalty. As our priest, he allows us into the throne room. As our priest, he gives us a share in his kingdom, in his power and his authority. As our king, Jesus sits on his throne, and as our priest, he allows us to sit there with him. You see, it's only because Jesus is our priest that we can draw near to God. Without him as our mediator, as our go-between, the honor and glory and majesty and royalty of God would always be destined to us. But as our priest, listen to this, as our priest, Jesus throws open the doors of heaven and and not even invites us in, brings us in, into the very presence of God where he himself has gone before This is the grace that we never deserve. Like, do you understand how unworthy we are to be in the throne throne room of heaven? To be in the presence of God? Undeserving. Guilty. Impure. Disobedient. And because Jesus is our priest, we get to share in the majesty of the God of the universe. But not only is Jesus our priest, I want to point out that he never stops being our priest. Look at verse 3 again. He is without father. So he's speaking about Melchizedek here. And he says, He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. Now, uh, uh, I'm sure that loads of you uh, started new reading plans, new Bible reading plans this this week, uh, last week. Um, I always joke that Genesis is probably the most read book in the Bible because every Christian starts off reading Genesis in January. And then, uh, by the time you get to either either February or Leviticus, whichever one comes first, you give up. <laughs> but maybe if you're reading through Genesis, you'll notice that there's a lot of genealogies. Those lists of, of, of whose mommy and daddy was whose mommy and daddy. Uh, because in the Old Testament, anybody who was anybody had a genealogy. Anyone who was anyone could prove their lineage. Who your mommy and daddy are is very important if you want to prove that you're an important person. But as far as as Melchizedek is concerned, it seems like he's a nobody. There's no mention of who his father was or who his grandfather was or who his his great-grandfather was. And the point is, he can't in any way trace his priestly line back to Levi. He can't prove that he's of Levi. Just like Jesus, he has no priestly heritage. And the point is this, that God 
uh, himself has appointed him. That God will appoint a priest, not based on anything that, that human beings think is important. But secondly, all the priests of the Old Testament had a, a limited term time, right? So, uh, this is part of the Jewish law, that you had to be over a certain age, and you had to step down when you became a certain age. Um, I wish politics were like that sometimes as well. Too many old people. Anyway, um, there is no record of his age or, or for Melchizedek of his age or of him ever stopped becoming a priest. So he's, in so many ways, he doesn't deserve to be a priest. And when it says in verse 3 that he has no beginning or no end, it doesn't mean that Melchizedek lived forever. It just means that there's no record of him ever stopping being a priest. He's pointing forward to the unending priesthood of Jesus it's, it's, a, it's a metaphor. It's an illustration. Obviously, the man, Melchizedek, did die. But what the author is trying to show is that the priesthood of Jesus never ends. And you think, well, look, it's great that Jesus brings us into the, king, into the presence of God, but why do we need the priesthood of Jesus to never end? Well, let me, let me answer that by asking you another question. Uh, we're, we're like 10 days into this year. Have you sinned this year yet? How about this week? How about today? You see, it's one thing to be invited into the presence of God. It's another thing to stay there. Have you ever been somewhere you just, you, you just know that you don't belong? Uh, I was thinking about this the other day. Uh, on honeymoon, me and Haley went into this really kind of fancy restaurant in Paris. Uh, you, you know, the kind of restaurant where you're like, what's the cheapest bottle of wine on the menu here? <laughs> that kind of place. And we're sitting there, we're just like, we do not belong here whatsoever. Now, without Jesus, that's what it's like trying to be in the presence of God. A thousand times worse. Listen, just like we have no ability to come close to God on our own in the first place, we have absolutely no ability on our own to stay there. If it were down to me, I would have been thrown out of God's presence long ago. If it were down to me, I would have been thrown out this morning, loads of times. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus not only opens the, the doors of heaven to, to bring us in, he, he lives continually to defend and prove that we belong there. Think about this for a second. Jesus brings us close to God, and then he continually defends our place there. He said, yes, look, I know she sinned this morning, and I know that she's going to sin loads of times tomorrow. But she is mine, and I am hers, and she's here because I say her place is here. That's what Jesus does for each one of us when we believe in him. And please don't think, please don't think that this is Jesus um, kind of arguing against the Father who doesn't want us there. This isn't a legal technicality that Jesus used to get us off the hook. It's not like we're a plus one on the guest list. Jesus stands in heaven pleading our case, not in front of an angry God who wants to chuck us out, but in front of a loving God who is so, so pleased with his son. He's done what's necessary to make it possible for the children he loves to be close to him again. The Father is delighted that in Jesus we have a priest. So instead of death, his children get life. Instead of, instead of separation, his children get brought, brought close. This is the insurance, assurance that we as Christians have day by day that Jesus continues to guarantee, guarantee our place in the presence of God. Just this week, I've just been enjoying every morning, his mercy is new. 
Every morning, every day, Jesus just saying, he belongs here because he's in me. How do we draw near to God? Through our forever priest. Now, I'm well and truly out of time, but just give me a couple more minutes just to do this last one. There's a lot in this. I hope you understand. Finally, uh, Jesus is our priest. Uh, Jesus is our, our king of righteousness and our, our, our king of peace. He's our forever priest, but he's also superior, and yet he blesses us, his inferiors. Now, I'm not gonna, I don't have time to read the verses again, but if you want to go back later and read verses 4 to 7, this confusing bit about tithes and about blessing and descendancy and all that kind of stuff. In the ancient world, tithes and blessings were a way of, of recognizing superiority and inferiority. So very, very, in a very long story short, a very long story, very short, um, the, 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 less important person, important, the less important person would pay tithes to the more important, important person. I can't say that. And the superior person would then bless the less important person. Goodness me. And Abraham is, is one, of the, one of the most important people in all of Jewish history. He's the father. He's the granddaddy of them all, right? In fact, God said, you're going to be the person who blesses the entire world. The whole world is going to be blessed through you. And here he is. He meets Melchizedek. And suddenly the tables are turned. Melchizedek blesses him. It's a clear sign that, that Melchizedek is superior to Abraham. And remember, these, these Jewish uh, this Jewish audience of this sermon, they're putting their hope and trust in the old Jewish system. And, and here, the, the author of Hebrews is saying, listen, there is someone to even whom the, the, the great patriarch Abraham was inferior. He paid him tithes. He allowed him to bless, bless him. He submitted to him. So what does this teach us about Jesus? When we recognize Jesus as our superior and give him our tithe, in that we offer our lives to him, we surrender our lives to him, he, as our king and as our priest and as our superior, blesses him. Now here's what I want to finish with. How does he bless us? He bestows his righteousness and peace onto us. Think about this for a second. He gives us his righteousness. He gives us his peace. He puts his righteousness on us. So if, if you believe that Jesus is Lord, then he drapes his right, rightness with God on you. He covers you with his peace with God. And then, with our king on his throne, and the blessing of our priest, we can draw near to God. Isn't that incredible? This is what he, our superior, does to us, is inferior. And if you're a Christian, listen to this this morning, which, which most of you are. If you're a Christian, I want you to do nothing, nothing more than just marvel at this. That allow, just enjoy this. Just submit yourself again to the kingship of Jesus and enjoy uh, his priesthood. Worship him in your heart and let this fill you up. And if you're not a Christian, if you don't call Jesus Lord, then I get to invite you into the presence of God. That's my job this morning, to invite you into the presence of God. Not, not because I have any special favor, because, I, I mean, anyone who knows me <laughs> knows that I am the least worthy person to do this. But I, I, I get to invite you into the presence of God because I know and I've experienced that Jesus is our priest and is our king, and, and that through him you can be close to God. And all you have to do is just accept him. Just wherever you are right now, you just say, 
Lord, I know I'm separated from you, and I know I can't bridge that gap myself. And so I just, I just name you as Lord of my life, and I know that you can bring me into his presence. And that's it. And here's the promise, and I'm going to go back to the very start again. Uh, verse 27 of, of chapter, verse 25 of chapter 7, it says this, the promise that we can all, all of us cling to this morning. Jesus is able to save completely anyone who draws close to God through him because he lives forever to plead our case. I, I hope that we can believe that this morning. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, um, we don't deserve this grace. We, we don't deserve to be allowed into your presence. Every law, every, uh, every natural law, every written law that you have created says that we should not be allowed into your presence, but yet what you have done through Jesus, our King and our priest, is, is just mind-blowing. Lord, we, I just pray that for all of us as a church that we would just believe and, and marvel at your grace that you as our King, Lord Jesus, sit on his throne, but not only that, as our priests bring us into your presence. Father, I pray that we would live lives of submission, given not just tithes of our money, but given uh, our whole lives as sacrifices, because you have blessed us with your righteousness and your peace. You have given us of your very royal nature and royal title. And we, don't believe, we don't deserve that, Lord. And so we just say thank you. And Lord, I just pray for anyone listening to my voice right now who is questioning these things, who's trying to make decisions, or is looking for peace, Lord. You just draw close to them. That you would reveal yourself in power and in priesthood. And just make this real. Lord, I, pray that, I pray that you would um, allow us all to see that through you, uh, we can have peace with God. We pray this for your glory, Jesus, and in your name. Amen.